The king has returned. The prophecies fulfilled. The years of longing are over. The king has returned. And now all will be made right. Amidst shouts of praise and tears of joy, the pleading for justice, the cries for our enemies' defeat. The king has returned. The king who was driven from his land as an infant, who spent his first years as a refugee, who understands pain and suffering. But this king is not who we were looking for. This king brings justice not over our enemies, but in the midst of our enemies. He brings peace, not in our land, but in our souls. He is the answer to the prayer we did not know we were praying. The King has returned. Long live the King. The king is dead. The hand that once held a branch now gripped a hammer. The king is dead. This king of kings who embraced the very nature of a servant. This prince of peace broken for us. This commander of angels surrendered cross. This king joins us in our suffering, empathizes in our weakness, and he calls us to die with him, to lay down our lives, to live in surrender that we may be fully alive. The king is dead. Long live the king. Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles today to the book of John, chapter 18? John, chapter 18, verse 13. And we are in this series that we are calling Easter is for Everyone. And today, Easter is for everyone because Jesus died for the whole world. If you consider yourself a part of the human race, or you ever did, <laughs> He didn't just come. He didn't just arrive and live a perfect life. He also died for you. Easter is for everyone. And it's not just for those of you who are churchy people. And the way that I know that you're churchy people is because you're in church and it's not Easter yet. All right? So you're churchy people. And so Jesus didn't just die for you. He also died for those people that you know that avoid this place like the plague. You know someone who avoids any conversation about God, religious, church, any of that? He died for them too. Easter is for everyone. And so if you're doing the math, today is Palm Sunday. Now last week we already discussed what Palm Sunday was all about, that Jesus arrived, that Jesus came for everyone, not just the churchy people, not just the religious people, not just the, the really bad sinners, Jesus came for everyone. And next week is Easter, and everything that we have talked about from last week and this week and next week all happened within one week, and what we discussed today all happened within one day. 
And if you've heard anything about Easter, and I'm sure that most of you have, you already know that Easter is the day that we celebrate Jesus Christ rising from the dead after being in the grave for three days. But you know for him to be dead, he had to die on a cross before that. And before he died on the cross, something had to send him there. He had to have a trial that somehow gave him the the death penalty to go to the cross. And so have you ever wondered what Jesus was actually convicted of? What was he actually convicted of? What judge, what jury would convict a sinless person and give him the death penalty? How many of you have ever been on a jury? On a jury? Oh, a lot of you have. Oh, man, okay. I've been on a jury two times. Both times, guy was guilty. I mean, guilty, guilty, all right? And here's a, this is one way that we knew that they were guilty. First guy, he was found sleeping in a car that had been stolen the night before. And they actually had pictures of him in the car. And so he gets up on the stand, and the prosecutor says, did you steal the car? He says, no. Were you ever in the car? He says, no. But there are pictures. No, I was not in the car. So it did not take too long to find him guilty. So the next guy in my next trial, um, he was found with a, a shank. He was in jail. And he was found with a shank, you know, a knife in his stuff. And so he gets on the stand, a prosecutor, a female prosecutor, and she says, is this your shank? Is this your knife? And he says, no. And so then they have pictures of his bunk. Did you, is this your bunk? Yeah, that's my bunk. Is this your blanket? Yes, that's my blanket. Is that your pillow? Yes, that's my pillow. Is that your toothbrush? Yeah, that's my toothbrush. Is that your soap? Yeah, that's my soap. Is that your knife? No, that's not my knife. <laughs> Guilty. And so today, Jesus tells the complete truth. He has done nothing wrong, and yet he gets the death penalty. How does that even happen? What is Jesus convicted of? That's what we're studying today. And that's why I asked you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John in chapter 18, because we're going to look at this night this one night. I know that you know that Jesus had a trial before he went to the cross, but did you know that he had seven trials with six different judges? Did you know that? Well, that's what we're going to look at today, these seven trials. He was moving fast, and one night to have seven trials, man, you can't even get jury selection done in a couple days. And when you go to jury duty, you roll your eyes because of how long it's going to take. Jesus had seven trials in one night. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 is the very first trial. It says, and they led Jesus to Annas first. Annas is the first trial, and he's the first judge. Annas was the high priest, but he's not anymore, which is like a crazy idea because if you are the high priest, you're the high priest for life. That's the way it was in Israel. But the Romans had removed Annas from his position as high priest because he was such a corrupt guy. You know, when Jesus would go into the outer courts of the temple and he would kick the money changers out. Remember that, that part of Jesus' story where he kicks the money changers out for charging exorbitant interest rates on doing the money changing? And then he kicks out the, the people who are selling the animal sacrifices for uh, crazy prices. Well, they all worked for for Annas. They all worked for him. He was a corrupt high priest. And so the, the Romans took him out of that position and they put his son-in-law in there instead. That's great. Anyway, verse 13. 
It says, for he, this is Annas, was a father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Well, yeah, they put him in there because they kicked Annas out. Look down at verse 19. The high priest, referring to Annas, he's still heavily respected by the Jews, of course, just because the Romans took him out. He's still respected because of his position. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. They want to catch Jesus. They want him to self-incriminate. And so what would be the, the accusation that they're trying to get him to self-incriminate for? Blasphemy. That's what they're looking for. The first three trials that Jesus has here are all religious trials. These are not Roman. These are not a part of the government. They're not a part of any part of the structure of Caesar. This is all religious. He's in front of a high priest. And they want him to self-incriminate with blasphemy to say that he is the Messiah that he is the Christ. That would be blasphemy, and that would be worthy of death. And so they're trying to get him to say it. And notice what Jesus says. Verse 20, and so Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them, and they know what I said. Did he say anything about him being the Christ? <laughs> no. He knows what's going on. And so then, verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officers standing nearby punched Jesus in the face and saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him and said, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. If I had the shank, show me the picture. If I stole the car, show me a picture with me in it. But if I spoke rightly, then why do you strike me? Of course, Jesus did not say anything wrong here. They could not catch him in anything wrong. Annas couldn't find anything. And so Annas then sends him off to his next trial. And his next trial is just the next verse in verse 24. So Annas, verse 24, so Annas sent him, sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. <laughs> Annas sends Jesus to his son-in-law. This is about one, somewhere between 1 and 3 a.m. in the morning. He sends him over to, to Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas, you know, is already the son-in-law of Annas, and so he does the exact same thing. He just attempts to get Jesus to self-incriminate, but Jesus had done nothing wrong, and he said nothing that would incriminate him on any of these things, and so he couldn't find him guilty of any crime. But these two guys so desperately wanted to get him charged with something, and so they send Jesus to his third trial, to the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is like the Supreme Court, maybe more like the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals sort of group, okay? And so the Sanhedrin is a very specific and very unique group of judges. It's a religious court that's only over the Jews, has nothing to do with the Romans, only a religious court. Remember, these first three are all religious, and they had some very specific criteria in the way in which they were to operate. The judges were 72 descendants from Moses. That's who the Sanhedrin were. 72 descendants from Moses, the bloodline of Moses. Those were the judges. And they had these criteria. They had to meet in the day. 
Uh, they had to meet in a certain room. They had to have court reporters at every one of their meetings or at every one of their trials. And one of the very unique um, procedures that they had as a Sanhedrin is that no person could be convicted of guilt unanimously. Sounds kind of weird because that's the way that we operate, that a unanimous guilt is what we're looking for. Well, if you were a part of the Sanhedrin, you could not convict somebody, meaning guilty, unanimously. Now, you could have someone not guilty unanimously, but you could not have someone found guilty unanimously. If it was a vote unanimous for guilt, that person went free, part of the Sanhedrin. Well, the Sanhedrin broke all of their rules this night when Caiaphas brings Jesus over to them. They meet at night, broke one of their rules. They didn't meet in the room that they always met in, and they didn't have the court reporters that they would always have. So they're already breaking their rules, and so they bring in two witnesses, uh, two essentially false witnesses who kind of counteract each other's testimony. But at the end of all this, Jesus finally breaks his silence and he says that he is the Christ. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for him to self-incriminate because they couldn't find him on anything else. And so the Sanhedrin did one more thing that their procedures did not allow them to do. They unanimously voted for his guilt. And he didn't go free. He was now guilty. But remember, this was a religious court. And so they had no power to do anything about it. This is worthy of death, but they can't mete out the death penalty because they're under the Romans. And so they sent him over to the Roman courts. They sent him over to the, the Roman side of things. They sent him to the city of Riverside and start to you know, put him through the metal detectors and, and have him go to the courtrooms and, because that is where real justice can come. And so that's where we read the next part of Jesus' trials. Now we move from the religious trials to the Roman trials that Jesus went through. And the flavor of the accusations change here too because Romans do not care one bit about blasphemy. That's not a thing for them. And so now the accusations are things like uh, inciting a riot, um, convincing people to not pay their taxes, saying that he was a king. And those are the things that the Romans would care way more about. And so then in verse 29, we just see the next trial. It says, therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So that's the next trial is with Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate, you have to know his story to know uh, why John includes the details of Pontius Pilate. He's going to include a lot of details here, and we need to know why. Pontius Pilate bought the right to be the governor of Israel. The Romans didn't care much about Israel, and so he bought the rights, like you could put your name on some stadium if you have enough money, you know. So he bought the rights to be the governor of Israel so that he could milk them for money. And so he paid them an upfront amount. And so then as they were milked with taxes, then Pontius Pilate would 
pay a percentage to Rome. And as long as there was general peace, and as long as the Jews were generally appeased, then go for it. That's the kind of shyster that this guy was. He was always working angles. And all he needed was just some general peace in the area. And so he says, what accusation in verse 29 do you bring against Jesus? And so this is the the coherent, detailed answer that they give him. They answered him and said, if this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. (laughs) He's guilty because we tell you that he's guilty. That's basically what they're saying there. And he does not care one bit. He does not care about blasphemy. He doesn't care about any of those things. And so Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. I don't care. I don't care what your problem is. And so the Jews said to him, though, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. And so we need you to put him to death is basically what they're saying. And so he's like, oh, man, we got some political unrest. We have, I just, want, I just want peace so I could tax you more. That's all he wanted. I don't want any of this to mess anything up. And so he says, okay, I'm going to send him to another judge, another trial. And so they send him off to Herod. He goes off to Herod. And in Luke chapter 23, we see how Herod responds to Jesus showing up. Herod wants to avoid this thing altogether too. So Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, they just publicly shame Jesus. That's all they do. Do a little bit of public shame, a little pomp and circumstance, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. To, but, but Herod doesn't want any of the Jesus political juice to splash up on him either. And so he just wants Jesus gone, just like Pilate wants Jesus gone too. And so they dressed him in gorgeous robe and they sent him back to Pilate. And I think I included this other verse just because it's funny. Now Herod and Pilate, they became friends with one another that very day before they had been enemies of each other, but Jesus brought them together. (laughs) Neither one of them wanted to have anything to do with Jesus and they agreed on that part. And so now they go from Herod and Herod sends them right back to Pontius Pilate. This is the next trial, just right back again. And that's why it's seven trials and six judges because Pilate was a judge in both of those trials. And so now we look down at verse 38 to see what Pilate's perspective was. Now that Jesus comes back, remember Pilate just wants everything to be okay. It just needs to be okay. We just just need to have peace and so I can charge you a few more taxes. Verse 38, and when he said this, He went out and said to the Jews, he said to them, I find no guilt with him. Jesus has done nothing wrong. (laughs) And this is important. Jesus has done nothing wrong. And so Pilate comes up with this an idea. He says, well, I usually do something for them. And so I'm going to do this and I'm going to give them an option. I'm going to give them an option and I'm just going to give them such a bad choice of options that they will pick the easiest one. You know, like when you say, hey, kids, we're going to take you somewhere fun, and we'll let you pick Disneyland or Castle Park. Which one are they going to pick? Disneyland. I mean, who's going to pick stinking old Castle Park? I mean, Castle Park is fine if that's all you get, but if I have a choice, you know your kids are going to pick Disneyland, right? And so that's what Pilate does with Jesus. Pilate says, okay, I'm going to give you a choice. Either you can have this really nice guy 
Jesus, he's done nothing wrong, he's just kind of weird, but it's no problem. Or you can have this dirty, dastardly, evil dude who's going to be put on a cross. His name is Barabbas. If we don't do anything with him, we just want him gone anyway, right? So don't you want Jesus? <gasps> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what verse 39 is, okay? It says, uh, but you have a custom that I release uh, one of you at the Passover, do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Yeah, pick Jesus. He's the easy, obvious answer. This is Disneyland. No one would pick Barabbas. No one would, would pick the dastardly, evil Castle Park. Nobody would pick that. They would pick Disneyland every single time. And so this is the last trial. This is the seventh trial. The seventh trial all comes down to this crowd of people, the crowd of Jews, the crowd that only a few days earlier were waving palm branches saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save now. Those same people in verse 40 now say, so they cried out again saying, not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas. You already knew that was coming. But Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. There's a whole lot to that word robber. Barabbas was a bad dude. And Barabbas was going to be put on a cross. But the very last trial, the crowd said, no, 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 no. We don't want Jesus released. We want him put on a cross. And so, chapter 19, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, in a mocking way, public shaming kind of way. And to give him slaps on the face, which was simply a, a way to ridicule him. But interestingly, notice what John points out. Verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to him, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He goes and beats Jesus up severely just to appease these people, just to put down the kind of this little, little group of Jews who are kind of causing some disruption. He doesn't want disruption. Pontius Pilate doesn't want disruption. He just wants general peace so that he can make more money. So he, he beats him up and brings him back out and says, I find nothing wrong with him. Skip down to verse 6. So, verse 6 of chapter 19. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt with him. It's not interesting. John keeps bringing this out in his gospel. Skip down a little more. Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release Jesus. Why? Because he found no fault with Jesus. He had done nothing wrong. And that's an important thing that John brings out because somebody, when they were going to die for sin, they had to be perfect. They had to be sinless. They had to be the spotless lamb that was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. Someone who had never sinned before. And who is that? Well, of course, that's Jesus. Even Pontius Pilate could tell that he had done nothing wrong. He was the perfect sacrifice going to the cross, having done nothing wrong. So you often hear me say, you know, at the end of our worship service, you often hear me say that Jesus lived a perfect life, 
that he, he never sinned, so that when he goes to the cross, he's not dying for, for his sin, he's dying for our sin. Well, this is where that comes from. That is a very important aspect of our salvation. Jesus never sinned. Even, even the Romans, who are godless people, in this case here, could not find one thing to convict him of at all. He was completely guiltless. But why did he go to the cross? Look at the end of verse 12. He tried to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, if you release Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar. Uh, Essentially saying uh, Caesar wouldn't like this. And so after seven trials, six judges, all in one night, all before 6 a.m., Jesus gets the death penalty. The most brutal way to die in Roman history would be crucifixion, and that's how Je- what Jesus was, was appointed to. And so you might wonder, why are we sticking to John? You notice we've been sticking to John this entire time. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all say a lot about the trials, all say a lot about the crucifixion. Why are we sticking with John? John is very unique because of the four men who wrote the Gospels, who wrote about the trials and the crucifixion, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only one of them was there. Only one of them was there at the crucifixion. Guess who that was? That was John. John was the only one who was there. And it's really interesting to notice the things that John includes and the things that John does not include that the other Gospels already do include. I think there's some things that John doesn't include simply because they were already in the other Gospels. He doesn't include the brutality that led up to Jesus' crucifixion, the brutality, the amount that Jesus bled out before he even got to the cross is enormous. And John doesn't include any of that. John doesn't include the whole fact that, that Jesus bled out so much he, did, he didn't even have the strength to carry the cross, bring the cross up the hill that someone else had to be recruited for that. He didn't include that. He didn't include the brutality of crucifixion really much at all. He didn't include the fact that Jesus dies naked on the cross. He doesn't include the fact that uh, he's ridiculed by six different groups of people. John doesn't include any of those things at all. But I find it interesting what John includes that nobody else includes. You want to see what that is? The guy who was there, you want to see what he includes? That's in verse 25. Look at verse 25. What John, the guy who was there, includes about the crucifixion of Jesus Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, that's Jesus' mom, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that is referring to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved is referring to the writer of this book, John. We saw them standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, he said to John, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. This part, only John includes. And I want you just to see what's here. He includes four very important women. He includes the mother of Jesus. And who is that? All right, Mary. You can tell that that's a very popular name. You know, (laughs) you got a lot of, yeah, of three women, of four women, you have three of them named Mary, all right? So you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
If anyone could have stopped the crucifixion, it would have been Mary. I mean, it's her firstborn son that's being brutalized. On the, if anybody could have stand up and said, hey, it's all fake, it's all a lie. If anybody would have known that the virgin birth was not true, it would have been her. If anyone would want to save Jesus, it would have been his own mother. And she was there, standing there, and she could have stopped the entire thing just by saying it was all fake. But she kept silent because it was all true. And so there's some other important women here. There's, uh, there's his mother's sister. Um, that happens to be uh, the mom of John. <laughs> So if you're doing the math, Jesus and John are first cousins, huh, the writer of this book. So then you have Mary, the wife of Clopas. She was the mother of two other of Jesus' apostles. The other James and the other Judas are her sons. And Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had a big part in her life. We don't even have time to go through all the details of that. But the focus is Mary, because look at the bottom down there, where Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down at his mom. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' focus when he was on the cross was his mom? And he knew that all of this was going to cause problems for her because his brothers and sisters, did you know Jesus had brothers and sisters? He did. Mary and Joseph had other children beyond Jesus, and Jesus really wasn't even Joseph's son. And so Jesus' brothers and sisters did not buy into this whole thing of their brother being the Messiah at this point. Would you buy into the fact that your brother or your sister is the Messiah? No. And so they didn't buy into it yet. And so they were so offended that Jesus knew that they wouldn't even take care of their own mom because Mary had so followed and loved her son Jesus that her own kids would not take care of her as soon as he was gone. And so he looks down and he looks at the disciple who he loved. That's referring to John. So John is standing there with Mary, Jesus' mom, and Salome, the, the aunt, and, and Mary, the other Mary, the wife of Chloe, and the other Mary Magdalene. And he's standing there with these four. And he says to his mom, Mary, woman, look at your son, meaning John. And he says to John, look at your mom, saying, please take care of my mom because my brothers and sisters are not going to do that. And from that time on, John became essentially the providing son for Jesus' mother, Mary. And then John gives us the last six words of Jesus on the cross. Right after we read that about his mom in verse 28 of John chapter 19, the last six words of Jesus, after this Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. There are three of the six last words. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said his last three words, it is finished. That's just one word in Greek. It is finished. It's just one, one word. And that one word has been found as archaeologists have gone back to this 
point in time in these places in history, and they begun to dig up parts of this first century culture. This one word that Jesus utters on the cross, it is finished, is found stamped on documents from first century accountants. First century accountant paperwork at the bottom is stamped this word, it is finished. That's how it's been translated for us in English. But you know what that word means to an accountant? Paid in full. It's stamped at the bottom, paid in full. You know, like when you pay off your car, you get your pink slip, and it's paid in full. You don't have to send any more payments. Uh, Like when you pay off your house, and you get the deed in the mail, it's paid in full. You don't have to make any more payments like that. And so what does it mean when Jesus is on the cross, and he says, it's paid in full. Well, you had all these Old Testament sacrifices. For thousands of years, people had been making these sacrifices. And those sacrifices that they had been making were merely covering the sin. It hadn't been removing the sin. They were merely down payments of, of some future final payment of a perfect Messiah, a perfect sacrifice. And so when an Old Testament believer would, would uh, offer a sacrifice as a, part of, um, as a part of their sin sacrifice, that sacrifice is not what saved them. All they were doing was looking forward to a future Messiah that would say it's paid in full, and this little sacrifice is just saying I'm looking forward to the real one. And so when Jesus is on the cross, he says, paid in full. No more payments necessary. No more sacrifices necessary. That all of your sin is completely paid in full. That's it. No penance, which means working off your salvation. No intermediate heaven where you had to work out some sort of agreement with God where you could go to heaven. No indulgences and paying off your sin financially. No baptizing for the dead. None of that. It's all been paid for. It's all done. It's all finished. It's been stamped, paid in full. You know, like, once you pay off your car, do you send in another payment? I guess you could, but it doesn't make the car any more yours. That's what Jesus says. It's paid in full. There is nothing, no works, no pulling up your own bootstraps, no being good enough, no making yourself better before you can come to Jesus Christ. It is paid in full because of Jesus on the cross. Jesus arrives for everyone and Jesus then dies for everyone. We've been talking about the uniquenesses of the book of John here and how it's different from the other gospels, primarily because the gospels had already, the other gospels had already written it. But there's one more unique thing about the book of John, and then we'll be done. One more unique thing about the book of John. John contains the most famous verse in the entire Bible. What verse is that? Here's a hint. Here's a hint. It's a sign that you see written on, you know, on the cardboard at every game. This, this happens to be a San Francisco Giants game. Of any place where you need John 3.16, it would be at a Giants game because those people need Jesus, okay? <laughs> Most famous verse in the entire Bible. Did you know that that was there? 
They have some other ones too, but it's on the bottom. Now everybody wants to go get a double-double and a drink just to try it out, you know, see if it's at the bottom of your cup. I don't know if you can see this picture very well. Can you see the John 3.16 on the eye black there? That is Tim Tebow. And Tim Tebow, before he went to the NFL, long before he went to the NFL, he had always written a Bible verse. He's a believer. A Bible verse on his eye black. And so in this uh, season that they were having, which is an amazing season in college, he had some Bible verse written on his eye black and his coach, not a believer, but his coach was relatively superstitious like most coaches are. And so he was happy that Tim Tebow always put the same verse on his eye black because that means they were always going to win, right? That's how coaches think, right? That's how, that's how sports are. You don't mess with what's been working. And so Tim Tebow at the national championship college game, right before it, he goes to his coach and he says, I'm going to change the verse on my eye black. And the coach just freaks out. I mean, he just loses it, you know. He doesn't care about the verse. He just knows it's been winning with the other one. And so Tim Tebow changes it to John 3.16, the most famous verse that anybody ever knows. And so they played that game. And analytics from that period when that game was played, 94 million people Googled John 3.16. 94 million. And the most amazing thing about that is, to, so like to me, 94 million people don't know what John 3.16 is. I mean, <laughs> hashtag Sunday school. Like, isn't that what it's for, you know? 94 million people looked up John 3.16. Maybe you don't know what John 3.16 is. Well, here it is. The most famous verse in the Bible here in the book of John. It's for God so loved the world. That's not, that's not the rock that's not, the, that's not the atmosphere. That's humans. If you consider yourself a human, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is the Jesus that we've been talking about today. This is God come to earth in the flesh. His name is Jesus Christ. And we already found out that he never sinned one time. It says, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That word perish is a word that we don't use. It just means die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The result of your sin is perish. Uh, The result of your sin is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And when I say sin, I just mean something you do that you shouldn't do. Have you ever done that? Something you say you shouldn't say. Have you ever said that? Something you think you shouldn't think. Have you ever thought that? Yeah. That all leads to perish, to eternal death in a place called hell. But whoever believes in this Jesus, they put their faith in this Jesus, the the one that we've been talking about today, the God in the flesh that has died on the cross for the sins of the world. Whoever puts their belief in him, they don't die like that, but they have life eternal in heaven. And I know every single person in this room knows a whoever. You know a whoever. You know a whoever that has not whoevered this yet. You know a whoever that has not believed yet. You were a whoever that hadn't believed, and now you have. But you know a whoever that has not believed yet. And I know that most of the time they avoid like the plague church, but not this next Sunday. This next Sunday is the one Sunday that they will not avoid church. And so I'm going to be like Pontius Pilate. And I'm going to be gracious to you. 
And I'm going to give you two options regarding this week. Uh, what you can do this week regarding what you now know, that Jesus not only arrived for everyone, but Jesus died for everyone. He not only died for you, but he also died for those people who want to avoid this place like the plague. Now that you know that, I'm going to give you two options. All right? Here's the first option, that you write with eye black on your eyes, <laughs> John 3.16 but you have to keep it on your eyes all week, okay? So everyone's participating. When you came in the doors, you didn't know this, but you're participating, and I'm giving you options here so you can pick, right? So eye black on your eyes, John 3.16 all week, and maybe someone will Google it. Maybe someone will look it up and find out what that verse means. Now, if you don't choose that choice, I'll give you a second choice. The second choice is, I just want you to invite someone to church on Sunday. That's it. You know a whoever. So you get to pick. You're going to do this? I did, uh, that's just Photoshop. That's all that is. <laughs> you could do that, or you could just invite someone. You pick. You pick which one you want to do. You know a whoever that has not believed yet, and they want to avoid church like the plague, but they won't this Sunday. And so invite them, just a personal invite. Hey, I'm going to church. Would you come with me? Just like that. Not do you want to come with me? That's yes or no, okay? Would you come with me? And it give them the times that our worship services are. I know you come for a service and you, this is like your time. You don't want anybody to mess with your time. This is the nine o'clock service. We also have one at 1045. And you think all the heathens come at 1045. Well, that's true. And you'll fit right in, Okay. <laughs> So ask them, when would you like to come, 9 or 1045, and be here early, stand right outside, wait for them, show them where the donuts and coffee are, sometimes it's kind of hard to see over there, come and sit with them, and if you can afford it, buy them lunch afterwards, but only the value meal stuff, okay? <laughs> There's Jack in the Box, go cheap, Jack in the Box right next door, right down the street is a new Taco Bell. I mean, only, tell them only order value. You, you cannot order anything on the real menu, okay? Only the dollar menu. You don't, evangelism, you got to be cheap in this, okay? So this is your choice. I black all week, and if you choose I black all week, I want you to send me a, a picture of it. I want to see that. Or I want you to invite just one whoever who has not believed yet. Now, there might be someone in here who is a whoever that has not put their faith and trust in Jesus. And now you've heard the gospel, you know the good news of Jesus, and we'd like to give you at least the opportunity to put your faith and trust in Jesus too. So I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes today? All of you, just create a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. But maybe you're a whoever. Maybe you're someone who didn't know John 3.16 and you didn't know that Jesus came and he died on the cross for your sin, that it is now paid in full and all you need to do is believe in him as your savior. Maybe you're not sure what to do about that. Well, all you do is you talk to God about that. That's called prayer. Maybe you've never done that before, and so I'm here to help you. That's why we've kind of bowed our heads and closed our eyes, just so there's no distractions around you just for a minute. And so you could talk to God in your heart. You don't need to say anything out loud. God knows your thoughts. He knows what's on your mind. You don't need to stand up or raise your hand or walk anywhere. But in the quietness of this moment, this is what you could say to God. You'd say, God, I believe what that pastor says. I believe that Jesus is God and he came to earth and he lived a perfect life 
He never sinned. I believe that He went to the cross and He died for my sin. And I know that I've sinned. I know that I have done things that I shouldn't have done and thought things I shouldn't have thought. But I believe that Jesus is the Savior, that He died for me and that He rose from the grave three days later on Easter. And I believe that He is in heaven right now listening to my prayer. And so I put my faith and my trust, I put my belief in this Jesus as my Savior. I put the eternity of my soul in the hands of this Savior. Well, dear God, we thank you for the truth from your word, and we thank you for the clarity, particularly from the book of John, about your sinless son. And we thank you for revealing it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.